0: The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in June 2007.
1: Welcome to Downstage Center. A presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theater Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM 28 on Broadway.
0: And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing.
1: They were joined by the gifted actress Marion Seldes. Hi, Marion. Hello. Before we went on, we talked about uh, people reading lists of credits can be so boring. I'm just going to skim some of your credits so our radio audience right. appreciates the work you've done over basically six decades yes. in theater, Broadway, off Broadway as well. Mm-hmm. Certainly shows like your current uh, appearance induce opposition opposite, Angela Lansbury. Also shows like Ring Around the Moon, Ivanov, Death Trap, Equus, Father's Day, A Delicate Balance, The Chalk Garden, Crime and Punishment, and Medea. That was your Broadway debut. Yes. You've also taught for decades at Juilliard and then later at Fordham. Yes. So, Marion, welcome. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> how, how do we cover all this in an hour? Let's start with Deuce. Deuce, well, you start with Angela Lansbury as two retired tennis players.
2: Yes, and it's a extremely... Thrilling experience to play this play with her, not only because she is a great actress and a beautiful actress, but because she's so beloved that when the audience first sees her, when the lights come up, there's like something happens in the theater, like an explosion of love, which is uh, uh, transmitted by applause and sort of whooping and sounds. Just, and I. Interpreted as saying to her thank you, thank you for coming back to the theatre. Now the fact that I am there too, I want to thank her because she gives this play a, a, a kind of a, I don't know how to say that um, they, the, the public want to see it and I think and of course I'm extremely biased that when they leave they're very glad they have because it's a kind of um, exploration of two women's lives, women who have been very well-known, very famous women, and now are not, and now are forgotten. And one of them, it hurts very much that she's been forgotten, and the other doesn't mind. Well, that's an interesting Mm -hmm. situation, isn't it? And then there's also the uh, metaphor of the tennis game with life, And I think that sports and theater are very connected. You are playing a game. It takes a certain kind of energy. And it also takes, for the actresses in this case and for everyone, a kind of care of oneself so that you give what an old actress used to call the cream of your energy to the play. I know before we went on we were talking about my teaching and I told you I wasn't teaching now I seem to be doing nothing but the play now. And of course, it's thrilling. If you have a small part in a play, you kind of can't say, well, I can't do this because I'm doing this play. But if you are starring opposite Angela Lansbury, you can have a whole life and then do the play. And that's what I love to do.
1: And the storyline of the play, your two characters are retired tennis players sitting yes. at a tennis match, watching yes. a championship match.
2: And because of the brilliance of Michael Blakemore, the director, I think the audience shares the match with us. They really do. And it goes on. The whole play just is takes place in real time. And it is the time of a singles match between two young women. And the two women who are being honored, of course, were a doubles pair.
1: Right, so the two of you had been tennis players, and now in real life, later on in real mm-hmm. life, uh, you're finding out things about one another you didn't realize when you were playing tennis. Oh, not together. at
2: all, not at all. Yeah. Yes, we're discovering mm-hmm. the, the the what has happened in thirty years mm-hmm. to each of us. It's fascinating. Mm-hmm. It's good, and uh, of course, I'm biased because Terence McNally is a playwright I love, and. He has given me a kind of opportunity in this play, as he did uh, two years ago in his play called Dedication, to act with people I would never dream of acting with. Mm -hmm. I acted with Nathan Lane. I've acted with Angela Lansbury. When I say never dream, I guess I could dream of it. But you don't know something like that will happen. And so the audience wants to see these people that I'm lucky enough to act with, and then they get me too.
0: Your modesty is extraordinary because frankly I would imagine those people you mention have the same reaction that <laughs> I get to act with Marion Seldis. But what I'm particularly curious about is you spoke about what opportunity Terence McNally gave you. Mm-hmm. And it's worth noting mm-hmm. that the play was written for you. He always had you in mind. Yes. And I'm I'm curious as to when you first get a script mm-hmm. from someone saying i wrote this for you mm-hmm. and i don't know how many times that's happened in your career mm-hmm. how do you react to that how knowing that that they they always thought it would be you and then what they wanted you to do well it's it's uh, what a wonderful
2: question because it's thrilling of course and a lot of people a lot of writers will say i'm going to write for you and then they don't and that's all right too but terence told me Towards the very end of dedication that he was going to write a play.
0: Now, had dedication been written with you in mind as well? No,
2: no, not at all. But he dedicated it to me when it was printed, which I found so moving. Well, so I'm going to say this mostly for the actors who are listening. I read the play he wrote. It first, uh, just a, a scene of it, and then it grew and grew. And I I thought, well, I certainly know how to do this, and I love this. And almost all my choices are not in my performance now, because I came to rehearsal with this extraordinary director, Michael Blakemore, and he saw it differently, and he really really taught me how to play this part.
0: Well, tell us what your initial thoughts were and then how, how, what you th- believe well, your are playing now.
2: I think what probably led me astray was the pleasure in thinking it was written for me to do and therefore what, that what I would do, this was the sort of acting decision I made, was just to be absolutely myself. Well, that was not th- that's not the character. I now know it isn't me, and it shouldn't be, because I am an actress, and this character is has, is the furthest thing from an actress as you could get. She's a real person, and Michael Blakemore taught me how to play her real.
1: During the writing process, you said you were seeing parts of it as it was being developed. Did yes. you have any any communication with Terrence McNally? Any feedback about no, the character?
2: No, no, no. It's entirely from his uh-huh. Uh-huh. head. He he really is he's so creative i mean i think if i had something to say he would welcome it but it would i don't really think that it is the actor's place to to uh, ask or tell the playwright what to do i think because of television and there's not much time to get things ready a lot of actors have begun to to Talk about their characters and to ask for this in the storyline, but th- but in the theater, I don't think it is that way. I think the play is what the playwright wrote, and that's what I want to do always.
0: It bears asking, as the press reports have it, the play was written for you and Zoe Caldwell, yes. who, due to scheduling conflicts, was not able yes. to do it. Yes. Have you ever pondered? Obviously, you praise your co-star to the skies. But have you ever pondered what the play might feel like had you done it with Zoe?
2: I don't have to ponder because we've done it. We've done it, just re- read it for, for uh, um, I think, for the producers once and for a group of people once and originally for a, for a fundraiser. And, of course, she's an exquisite actress. And, of course, I, I loved it. And I felt so before I knew it was Angela I knew it was Angela over a telephone call I had to sit down I was so shocked and thrilled because we didn't know what we'd do when Zoe couldn't do it Uh, but she is I think a well Zoe Caldwell represents to me a real actress a great actress and it would have been wonderful to do it with her and maybe someday we will we don't know, you never know
1: well, when Zoe dropped out mm. and they cast Angela, was any change made to the show at all? No. It st- oh no. Intact? I
2: I think if Angela Lansbury was sitting here with you, she would say that she simply reacted so positively to this okay. character that she wanted to do it. No, no.
0: As we were talking about Terence McNally and that you had done Dedication, and and now this, certainly you've also had the opportunity to appear in multiple plays by Edward Albee and we'll talk about your work with him soon but I'm curious with all of the playwrights and all of the work that you've done um, how do you respond to, to Terrence's writing what 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 is it that appeals to you most as an actress
2: what appeals to me most about it and this is very specific because of of what I've done mostly on the stage is it's Reality is that he, I talk the way people talk. Not—it's not what in acting schools they call an elevated text. It's life. It's real, and I'm always looking for that. Even when I do a play in which the language is, you know, elevated—if we want to use that word—heightened. Uh, but I—I want—I don't want to be just a classical actress. I want to be an actress who can do almost anything. You can't do anything. You look a certain way. You sound a certain way. And acting isn't pretending to be someone else. It's finding something in yourself that can make other people believe you are someone else.
0: Do you think people see you as a classical actress, and so you have to to work to be considered for, for more modern roles?
2: I don't think about that, Howard, because if I did then i'd always be uh, hoping or be disappointed or i'm such a fortunate theater person that i've worked almost continuously in the theater from the moment i began so and i realize that you do not plan your career you could dream your career and you could i dreamt that i would play all the greek plays and lots of shakespeare and I think I give the impression that I have, but I haven't. And the audience for those plays has gotten smaller, too. And that's, you know, it's it's a very few theaters in New York do classical plays anymore.
1: Well, your surname, Seldes, is known even prior to, to your birth, because your father yes. was a writer, a very yes. well-known r- yes. writer, Gilbert Seldes. yes. How did you get interested in theater? You originally, you made your first public performance as a dancer, actually a ballet dancer, and then you got into theater after that. Yes,
2: but of course, I, I wasn't really dancing in the uh-huh. ballet. I was what they called in the ballet in those days a super, meaning uh-huh. a supernumerary. Uh-huh. And it was in a performance in 1942, my dear readers, in, <laughs> mm-hmm. at the ballet theater in a performance of Petrushka. I I wanted very much to be a ballet dancer, but I'd already decided I was going to be an actress. But I loved dancing, and I was a student at the School of American Ballet, and they simply came to the school and said, we need people to be in the crowd scene of Petrushka. And my parents were quite definite about, on school nights, you didn't do other things, you did your homework but I took a chance and I called my mother and I said do you think I could do this and she instantly said yes Mm. I don't know why Mm. and so my friend and I went down to the old Metropolitan Opera House and were in that and we were just in the crowd scene but it was a thrilling event I never knew what the golden horseshoe meant when it was when they talked about the old met and then the curtain went up and you saw the shape of a horseshoe in lights that, around the boxes and everything. It was a wonderful way to start. It was very dramatic and very wonderful.
1: When did you first know you wanted to be an actor?
2: I think I was about six years old.
1: And what what made you decide that? Did something happen? Did you see a show or something like that?
2: I just knew that's what I was going to do. Uh-huh. I think it was school and being in a Christmas pageant and loving uh-huh. it. But I never thought of it as um, I never thought of it as a a career that would make money or be famous. Those are not two of the things I wanted. And the third thing I never thought of was applause. I only say that because so many people think that's why people do it. I wanted to do it because it was so, it was so full of imagination and wonder to me. I think if I could have been a writer, I would have written what I've tried to do with my life. But To be an actress and to be, in a sense, the servant of a writer is, in my opinion, a very wonderful career
1: to have, a wonderful
2: life to have.
1: Who were some of the early influences on you as you were getting started? Well, certainly my father,
2: Mm -hmm. of course. He was not only a, a... newspaper columnist and a, and a writer of books His, I guess the book he was most known for was called The Seven Lively Arts but he was also a theater critic so I started going to the theater very early with him and I would say the, the actress and director who first made the greatest impression on me were Catherine Cornell and her husband Guthrie McClintock. and they continued to through the first 20 years of my career I thought to be an actress and to also be a producer was just an amazing thing, and that isn't something I've ever been able to do.
0: Hmm. Well, we should say that thanks to your father and mm-hmm. his relationship to the people in the field, mm-hmm. you had access to these people above mm-hmm. and beyond. You weren't just a starstruck girl going to the theater and no. looking at them from afar. No. You had the opportunity to meet these people, and yes. for them, and, and indeed, several pretty illustrious people began giving you recommendations yes. including Guthrie McClintock
2: yes he, he, well he was uh, just, uh, told me to go to the neighborhood playhouse which was a very uh, very important thing for me because that's where I got this this feeling of wanting to be a real person as opposed to a someone who was impersonating somebody on the stage and my teachers there included Sanford Meisner who was who a truly marvelous teacher and and Martha Graham, who taught me as much about acting as she did about dancing, and whose work I, I adored. I mean, I could hear a Greek play when she would do a Greek character on the stage. She was so extraordinary.
0: And we should say, you know, nowadays, if people hear the daughter of a critic mm. wants to be an actress, mm. it seems, seems to... Layer psychological torture <laughs> upon torture. Well, but the nature of the kind of writing your father did, and the relationship of critics to the art form, were was different. in those It was days.
2: different, and he was different. He he wanted to say to the public, "Look at this. This is fascinating." Not, "I didn't like this. Don't go." He he, the Seven Lively Arts is a book about the um the comic strip the film the vaudeville um,
0: all kinds the
2: popular culture and that uh, he loved but he loved the theater too and uh, I don't I've never thought as the critics as the enemy I think they are part of the entire experience of being on the stage and saying come look at this and if you were ever in a play that is not reviewed at all, you'd realize how much you miss them. You need them. They're part of it.
1: Hmm. That's an interesting observation.
2: Well, I because, believe it.
1: Yeah. Do you, do you read the reviews?
2: I read all the reviews of all the plays, and certainly the ones I'm in, and I read them as they come out, because... It 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 seems to me I wouldn't turn away from someone as I left the theater who said to me I'd love to ask you a question about the play so or may I say something and they might say something negative uh, everyone has a right to an opinion I'm not saying it isn't painful when it's critical but you have to learn that that's one of the first things my father said to me he said you have to be able to be strong enough to take negative criticism
1: and when you read or hear that opinion, and it may be not the best opinion, mm-hmm. do you then, how do you react to that, and how do you react to that in terms of your performance? Do you change anything in your performance? No, you mustn't. Uh-huh.
2: I mean, then you would be going against the director and the playwright and your other actors. No, you don't change it, and I think you, in an odd way, there's sort of a law of silence in the theater about a bad review. You just don't talk about it. If you've, I've done almost... Nothing in the theater that I haven't loved to do. And I'm a very faithful person. And I wouldn't stop loving a lover. And I would never stop loving the thing I'm doing until it's over. That doesn't mean I don't have certain ideas that might differ from what I'm actually asked to do. But it's not, it's, that's not important. If you, if you want to be a solo actor, then do a solo show. I want to be part of a, a group of people doing a play.
0: As we discussed when we introduced you, you are now in celebrating the 60th anniversary of your Broadway debut. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little about what the theatrical community felt like when you first came into it. and. And how things have changed, both both as someone who's working in it mm-hmm. and just the spirit of it. Because people spend mm-hmm. a lot of time mm-hmm. saying, oh, it's not like the old days.
2: Well, of course it isn't, nor should it be. But the spirit of it is still marvelous and always will be. The, th- the biggest change is that it never occurred to me that there wouldn't be five, six, seven, ten plays on Broadway. I never thought of Broadway as a place where people came to see Musicals almost exclusively, or that when you read Broadway this or Broadway that in Variety, it was mostly about musicals. I just grew up in a time when Tennessee Williams plays were being done, and and Arthur Miller's early plays were being done, and and at the end of the time when Philip Barry and Eugene O'Neill were constantly in the public eye, and the biggest change to me and the most uh, well, I don't want to say the word upsetting, but the the sort of dangerous change to me is that the audience for a serious play seems to have diminished. And my first idea is that it is because it's so expensive. But I don't think it's just that. And I'm not quite sure why. But to be honest with you, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it because I have this feeling that if you... If you keep trying to find out why something doesn't work, you begin to think about it in a different way. For me, the theater works. If the night those thousand people, or in the case of Off-Broadway, 200 or 99 people come, if that works, then it's wonderful. If the play isn't palatable to the audience and they don't come, you have to live with that. Not every book sells. Not every movie makes a great, great thousands and thousands of dollars, and that's the reality of our profession.
1: Do you, do you suppose the the popular culture, the change in our culture in the last sixty years since mm-hmm. you made your debut, that that has caused Broadway to change? You mean television, because of the television, of television mm-hmm. the the so-called MTV generation?
2: Well, I don't know. I I, I mean, of course, when movies first came out, they they were terrified that the theater would suffer, and I don't think it has. I think if I could live another 60 or 70 years or 80 years, that I would see a, a sort of a, that, that a circle had come round again. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think there will always be theaters. It, they may not always be on Broadway. I think the off-Broadway theater is a thrilling and wonderful world. One year I was an OB judge, and I learned so much that year. I learned to see talent I didn't know existed, and all my faith came back.
0: Well, let's jump back now, because the opportunity to go through your career and talk about your work and the amazing people you worked with, you certainly set a high bar for yourself, your your Broadway debut starred Judith Anderson. Yes. And very shortly thereafter, you were in a production with John Gilgood.
2: Well, John Gilgood directed Medea, oh. you see, Sorry. and played Jason in the beginning of oh. the run. He and Judith had done Hamlet together many years before. She'd played the Queen, of course, and he was the Hamlet. I don't think he wanted to play Jason, but he was so dear. He, he, he wanted to honor her by playing it, and he did. And so I got to know him. And, um... And he cast me in it, after all. I had no lines when I made my Broadway debut. I was a servant to Medea. I had nothing to say, but I was an understudy. And then when it went on tour, I acted in it. And I also acted in a play called Tower Beyond Tragedy with uh, Judith. I played Electra, and she was Clytemnestra in that. I was in Come of Age with her, so there are a lot of times when I've been with someone longer than just one play, and that's marvelous because you build up a relationship and a trust. But being in that play and, and having told you that I wanted to do the Greek plays was marvelous. And I was fearless in those days. When we'd have understudy rehearsal, I'd play Medea. And finally, one day, about three years later, I played Medea in, in a, a summer theater once. So I played it. I've had that experience Hmm. to play that part. And I was thinking, too, if if you look at, in a sense, what they call my credits, if you you didn't look at my name and you looked at the people I've worked with, you would think, well, she ought to be good because she should have learned something from every play (laughs) she's been in. Hmm. And I feel that I am still a student.
0: So who do you think? Talk about some of the people you think you have learned from. Well
2: Gilgard certainly
0: what do you think you do you, can you can you encapsulate what you took I don't know
2: if I can I think to to be disciplined and that out of the discipline can come what what is almost improvisation but until you are disciplined you can't be free you have to know every word and what you want to do with every word and then you don't think about it then they're yours I mean, I'm not pre-thinking what I'm going to say to you, so I'm talking the truth to you. Well, same thing in, in the theater. And actually in the play I'm in now, because, because we've played it for a while together, it, I don't know where the words come from anymore. They're, they're the character, and I'm the character. And he gave me a great feeling about that, and also about a love of the past. I, I spend a lot of time thinking about the past because I miss the people that are gone. I miss John Gilgood for instance, and his, his beautiful acting and his, he wrote beautifully about the theater too and he was a fascinating director because he he changed his mind a lot. and a lot of directors don't. they know exactly what they want and that's what they go for. And you would come in one day for, with Gilgood and he would do one thing, ask you for one thing and the next day another. And then after Medea, I played his sister in Crime and Punishment, and that was a huge play and not a success, t- terribly exciting to do. And uh, I, I was sort of half in love with him as an actor mm-hmm. because he was so elegant and beautiful, and that isn't the way anymore. I don't know anyone like him anymore.
0: Who else have you learned from? Who are a few others?
2: Well, everybody. I certainly learned from Herman Shumlin because because he. I, I that's one of the few plays I did. It was a mystery play called The High Ground, and it wasn't a very good part, but I did it because I had read and known so much about Herman Shumlin as a the director of Lillian Hellman's plays and the producer of many wonderful plays, and I wanted to work with him. And he was marvelous. And what I learned from him was truly precision. One day he called me up and asked me how I was. I said, I'm fine. He said, oh, I thought perhaps something was wrong because you turned the page of the newspaper on a different line last night. That sounds sort of like hmm. a joke. But it wasn't a joke. Hmm. And I, I had never thought of that kind of precision before. I do now. And I wouldn't ask it of anyone if I were directing, but it's a wonderful thing. It's at that moment. And the best way to explain it is if you were an instrumentalist and you didn't play a note at the right time, it's not right. So turn the page. Well, that was, I know it sounds so small, but it made a great impression on me. He was a wonderful man.
1: Now, you mentioned a moment ago, talking about John Gilgood that mm-hmm. some directors come in knowing exactly what they want yes. and sticking to their, their game mm-hmm. plan, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Others, like Gilgood mm-hmm. kept changing his mind. Mm-hmm. How does that affect you? D- do you prefer one style to another? It, what
2: I prefer doesn't matter. Uh-huh. You, the director is the director. Uh-huh. He is the other eye that you need. You can't look at yourself and judge yourself. And I think if you want to be an actress you have to have a frame of mind where if you want to come in with your own performance, that's a different thing. I don't want to do that. I want to find it in the rehearsal. And the other thing I should say is, especially since we're talking about Gilgood and I acted with him, I find a lot that I want to do from the other actor in rehearsal as much as from the director. I've worked a lot now with Brian Murray, who's a superb actor. And I'm not talking about sitting down and discussing things. I'm talking about rehearsing the play. And I've learned as much from Brian as I have from any other director.
0: You've mentioned Gail Good, you've mentioned Brian Murray. Mm-hmm. It seems to logically take us to asking you about Edward Albee. Because you well, both of those men are people who've, who've worked and works with you.
2: Yes. With
0: How did you first come to, to Edward's attention? Uh, certainly Tiny Alice, where at first you, you were standing by. Yes, but
2: but that I came to his attention through his attention to other playwrights. As soon as Edward Albee began to succeed in the theater and make some money in the theater in Virginia Woolf, he established a group. And each year it would have another name. It would be Theater 76 or Theater whatever. And so I was in a, a play called The Four Minute Mile, a one-act play at his theater, and he saw it. And Richard Barr, who was then producing Edward's plays, said to me, I thought he said Edward has written a part for you. I think it probably, he said, has a part for you. I thought he meant written it. And in my autobiography, I wrote that because it was so thrilling. Well, Edward was quick to point out to me, he doesn't write plays, f- parts for actors, he writes parts. But anyway, that's a, sort of a little private joke Edward and I have. But it was from his giving another playwright a chance that he saw me and and um, so that I never have had to in a sense try out for a part for an Albie play I was I did play Julia in in A Delicate Balance and it was it was a wonderful experience for me I love that play I think it's a beautiful play and and then I got the chance to stand by for um, Irene Worth in Tiny Alice and because she did have trouble with her throat for a few days. I actually played it and that was exciting and of course I played it with John Gilgood, my idol mm-hmm. and um, and then from then on I, I, after a delicate balance I thought well I've had that amazing good fortune again talking about dreams. If, if I could have dreamed I'd be another play with him with that Edward had written I would have thought well, don't be greedy you've got you've had two parts now with him well he's changed my life in the theater of course the the part in Three Tall Women in which I played two parts actually first the, the middle aged woman and then the older woman on the tour when I come out after the play Induce and the crowd is waiting to see Angela I can't tell you how many people talked to me about three tall women. It was a gift, a true gift.
0: I'm curious, in the 60s, when Mm -hmm. you did Tiny Alice Mm -hmm. and Delicate Balance, Mm -hmm. certainly Edward's career was in its full flower... But those are works which some people found cryptic or mystifying. Yes. I was wondering what it was like, because now, of course, he is the master dramatist and yes. all of the work is rel- yes. recognized mm-hmm. for its achievement. But what was it like being in those works in in the era when they were so new and, and surprising to people?
2: They're surprising, but they are not baffling to me. It has never occurred to me to question a moment in an Edward Albee play, because he creates a world—the world that the characters in Virginia Woolf live in—the world, the beach and seascape where two of the characters are people and two are are lizards—and if you will, if you can go into his world, you will believe what he's writing and every line you say. And unlike Terence, who rewrites quite a lot. If Edward gives you a script, that's pretty much what you're going to do. It's he's carefully, carefully worked on it, edited it, and there doesn't seem to be an extra word. I think he's just a great playwright.
1: Well, moving from the 1960s into mm. the 70s, mm-hmm. Equus. Tell well, us a little Equus, bit about, about Equus.
2: Yeah. I. I adored doing that. Uh-huh. Now, there was a play that was recreated from the London production, so John Dexter had done it before, and in a sense we were recreating the 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 look of it and so on. But still, The rehearsals were extremely exciting. It was my first chance ever to work with Anthony Hopkins and for American audiences to see him on the stage. Now he's a famous, famous film actor, but he is a miracle
0: on the stage.
1: Was that his first New York? uh, Here, here, yes,
2: yes. And, and he
0: certainly was not the film star that he is now. No, at that no, that time. all. followed He was that. a respected stage actor.
2: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. He had done um, one of the sons in um, the
0: uh, in Lion and Window. The Lion and with and he's
2: wonderful in that. But he he just is a, a marvelous actor. And I stayed with that play for over three years. So I played uh, Hester. The uh, magistrate, and then later, when Francis Sternhagen left the play, I played the mother. So I had a wonderful time with uh, a lot of actors in the play.
0: Well, exactly, because the the lead actor, in particular, and, and even the yes, boy yes. changed over oh, those three years. Oh, so you lot. not only got to appear with Anthony Hopkins, well, but Richard Burton, Richard Bur- Anthony, Anthony Perkins, Perkins
2: and uh, it was it was really thrilling to do. And and now the play is being done in London to great success, and I'm sure they'll try to bring it here, so that we can see Richard Griffiths and um, and um, Daniel Radcliffe and Daniel Radcliffe in it.
0: But tell me, mm-hmm. being in a show for that period of time, mm-hmm. but with the elements changing, and mm-hmm. even you yourself getting mm-hmm. to take o- on a different, different part. Role, yes. What what's the dynamic of that like? When certainly different actors come in, and yet you're. You're playing the role, Yes, but certainly first you off, simply
2: yeah. adapt to mm-hmm. it. That is the task. And I never found it difficult. I loved it because I thought that the character of Hester was in love with the doctor. I mean, I don't mean physical love, but she loved him. And so I just transferred that to whoever played that beautiful part. It's a beautifully written part, that Dr. Dysart. And then the mother was so... Confused and, and unhappy, and nothing could nothing could get into her head to help her and it was a completely different part, a completely utterly different experience. I think I like playing Hester more, although the mother was a more important part
1: uh, you talk about adapting in, mm. in, in what way in, in timing in, in timing, of
2: course, uh-huh. and listen even the look of the person. Mm-hmm. It, you, you're so used to the one look and now it's a different person and each of these men brought something different to the character and um, and, and so indeed the boy, Alan uh, Tom Hulse was um, um, I'm not going to say his name and I love the boy, the original boy uh, Peter stand yeah. uh, Standby, and Peter overslept the first matinee, <laughs> and Tom played it two days after we opened. Tom is now the uh, one of the producers of Spring Awakening, and a big force in the theater, and a wonderful man. And that's thrilling to me, just mm-hmm. great.
0: As we hopscotch around your incredible career, and we can't possibly touch on everything... I want to take a moment to ask you about a show which most people did not have a chance to see. Mm-hmm. A show called The Merchant. That you yes, did.
2: by Arnold Wesker.
0: And I ask about mm-hmm. it because it was a famously troubled production in which ultimately the leading actor, Zero Mostel, passed away mm-hmm. uh, during the course of its its tryout coming mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. And Arnold Wesker has written a book detailing his views mm-hmm. about that production. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to ask you what have you read that book first of all? Of course I've read that book. And and what's your perspective on on that? What what is it what is it like to be in a production that is is fairly clearly troubled?
2: Well, it isn't troubled until the trouble starts, of course, and the rehearsals were wonderful and Zero Mustel Whom I knew anyway before we went into rehearsals was such a fascinating and and multifaceted man, and so funny and so sexy and so outrageous and so just—you just couldn't wait to get to rehearsal. Well, when he became ill and died, in a in a sense, the production had to die too, because they nobody wanted to come in for him they asked a lot of very popular and famous people who were famous for comedy as well as being good actors and nobody wanted to do it but i think for arnold he 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 he's never stopped loving that play and wanting it to have a success I loved it because it gave me a second chance to work with uh, John Dexter on a play he had not done before. And, in fact, we were planning to do another play together. And, of course, it's awful when you're older and you do survive people. John is gone, too. A lot of the people that I adored in the theater I've outlived And I miss them, and I'm grateful to them. But uh, we were going to do uh, either King Lear with Richard Burton, who's also gone, of course, or The Seagull. We were talking about a lot of things we were going to do. And, you know, sometimes when I'm in a play, people say, what are you going to do next? And I don't care what comes next. I want to do this. But but the idea that I would work with John Dexter again thrilled me, and I'm sorry that never happened.
1: Well, speaking of things coming next, Equus was a big hit. He had a long run in that. The next Three years, yes. Big hit show that you were in was Death Trap, which was 1978.
2: Yes. yes. Well, no, earlier than that, did it start in 78?
1: Yeah, it started in February of 78, my notes and show.
2: Oh, I guess you're right. Well,
1: yeah.
2: um, I, w- yes, I was in that in the theater where I'm now in Deuce, in a better dressing room, of course. <laughs> um, I, I was in that for a long time, almost five years. Well, we should
0: say a record-setting run, because you did it continuously without missing a performance for, well, the, for four I years. I always
2: say to people that I don't miss school or I wouldn't miss this I tend to show up and I I think it's a terrible thing if you don't I mean if you're really sick of course you can't but um again in Death Trap the the um The leading man constantly changed, and a lot of the other characters did too. So I was never in a. I was. It's never repeating uh, in for me that that you do the play again. You do it if possible. There's a wonderful expression that William Gillette, a great, uh, famous American actor, had. You you try to preserve the illusion of the first time, and that's the key to being in a run that goes on for a long time. It's always the first time for the audience, Mm -hmm. so it better be for you, too. And I don't find that difficult. Mm.
0: But in Death Trap, because of the construction of the play, and Mm. I guess I say this thinking there are some people now who don't know it, so I hope I'm not giving away much, your character uh, was confined to the first act. Yes. Yes. So you had an hour or so every evening Mm -hmm. to wait for your curtain call.
2: I never waited. I went and saw other plays. Everyone on the street knew me, and they'd let me come. I mean, I saw things that everyone was dying to see. I only saw half of them, but I saw it. And the mm-hmm. other night, I saw this not m- m- the matinee. I saw the final uh, half of a uh, Corum boy. I'm insatiable to see other things. The only disadvantage of being in a, su- in a success is that you can't see your colleagues in other things. But I, I also had written a book or was writing a book and I finished the book I think when we were still in The Merchant and but you don't really finish it and then I added and added and I had a wonderful editor who helped me and I was very shy about writing not, I'm not shy about acting but I couldn't sort of give it to anyone to type so I had a, a dressing room and that uh, was... Uh, had a little extra room to it, and I put the typewriter there. And at night, I typed this manuscript, and uh, people said, I wrote the book there. I I wrote in the morning. You can't write a book halfway through a performance of a play. But you typed it. I typed it (laughs) so that I wasn't too shy to give it to a, a, a professional typist to type.
1: So you've seen a lot of second acts then. <laughs> yes,
2: and I loved it. It was fun to do.
1: Was there ever a day when you woke up and said, I don't feel like going to work today? No,
2: no, no. That's not allowed. Ah. Listen, we're too lucky to be employed, the word of, of employment. It's a terrible thing when you're not. And if I took it for granted, I, and if I said to you, yes, I didn't want to go to the theater, then I, I, I should be ashamed of myself. And I felt that same way about teaching. I think if a teacher comes in and says, "No, I've got a headache, she should go out again and turn around and come back because you can't do that. If you are going to do a job, you've got to do it the best you can. And the, the the example I always use is a doctor. You don't want a doctor who's going to operate on your eye to say, oh, I've had a terrible night and I haven't had enough sleep. You want him to be at his best. And I think that we in the theater owe it. We literally owe it to the audience to be at our best, and we have to be.
1: Well, you've worked pretty much... Throughout your entire career, uh, what was your longest period of unemployment, so to speak?
2: I don't know. I haven't had one.
1: <laughs> You've been very between
2: fortunate. actual plays, uh-huh. between dedication and deuce, was it quite a long time for me? Although I've done, I've done four films, two short independent ones, and two big, uh, big movies, and none of them have been shown. So God is saying mm-hmm. to me, stay in the theater.
1: And you've done a lot of television work, a lot of radio work, a lot yes. of CBS Mystery Theater, yes, radio work, yes. and the Hallmark um, Hall of Fame on TV. Yes, oh, of, you
2: know everything. A lot of work
1: over the years, not just on stage.
2: No, no. And I do a lot of uh, things now, like uh, Food for Thought, which wow. I love, and the Shaw Project down at the Players, where, you, where um, David Stoller is doing every play that Shaw wrote. And um, the food for thought is a lot of plays. One acts, and sometimes it's um, narrative, but I love doing that too. And I find that the audiences there are so ready to listen. they They are so attentive because a lot of them can no longer afford to go to the theater. They're women who would go to a matinee as second nature forty years ago, and now it's beyond their their ability to get there, or who don't want to. And so, it's it's a, a wonderful audience there. Mm-hmm. I love to do that.
0: Well, speaking of audiences, we, we spoke earlier on about the fact that you know plays on Broadway are are not seen in the volume that they were. No, and. We've been hitting the highlights of your career and mm-hmm. talking about Broadway, but it, it certainly bears mentioning you have done extensive off-Broadway work as well. Oh,
2: yes, oh, yes, and I love it. I've had better parts there. I mean, I have such a good part in Deuce. I have a leading part in a play. But um, in that book called The Bright Lights, which I wrote, you will see that I I refer to myself as a supporting actress and because I'm always doing that but when you start out to be an actress and then later when you go into summer stock you play the leads you don't dream of being in the corps de ballet when you study ballet but i've had wonderful parts off broadway and and i don't i think that the standard is just as high the critics are just as uh critical or not as the case may be and I think that it, uh, the off-Broadway theater is feeding the Broadway theater with playwrights and actors. I don't know what we'd do without it.
0: Because you work inevitably in smaller venues mm-hmm. off-Broadway, mm-hmm. Does, does it change your approach to roles when you're working... In a smaller house versus a larger house. Indeed, we should say that Deuce itself was originally planned to be done at primary stages, a a small theater, and now obviously you're in the music box.
2: Well, the answer is no. It doesn't. Nothing in the preparation of a play has to do with where you're going to do it until that's set. Now, as soon as we knew it was the music box and as soon as they bring in the, the model of the set, you get this amazing idea that you're going to be in a, an arena where tennis is played. But, except for the fact that we are miked, Angela and I, because the tennis game is, has a sound of its own, and I think it would be very hard for the audience sometimes to follow us if we weren't miked. That's the only difference. But there's an odd thing about a microphone. You still have to have the kind of energy to, to send what you're doing out into the auditorium as you would if you weren't miked. You can't just say, well, it will take care of it for me.
1: It was interesting the the night that I saw the show. Mm-hmm. Angela's mic went out for a minute or two toward ah. the beginning of the show. Ah. Yet you could hear every word she said. Ah, she's still she's still projected, of but you knew that it wasn't coming out of the speakers; it was coming really? directly from. That's by, so yeah, interesting. Yeah. And then yeah. they, they found the trouble, yeah. the mic came back on.
2: Well, of course, I feel a sort of old fashioned, and I wish it weren't mic'd. I wish we didn't have to have microphones. But I think when we were talking uh, about things influencing the theater and MTV and things like that, I do think that if the sound isn't at a certain level, the audience will become restless. And not all the young actors do know how to project their voices. And, and or, or you know drop the ends of lines and things. It's such a common thing, but it's terribly important. And especially if you're in a comedy, and the audience doesn't hear the word that makes you say what's funny later, mm-hmm. it's it can it can spoil the performance. So.
1: There was a show, I won't mention, but uh, a play with several actors entering into My wife and I said to each other, we heard other people saying the same thing. Can you hear him, that one oh particular boy. actor? Oh you boy. could hear everybody else very mm-hmm. clearly. It mm-hmm. was one man, one actor that well, was having, I don't know stra- if he had vocal trouble or he just wasn't projecting. But, but
2: it's it, strange, isn't it? Because yeah. it can spoil the evening for you. Of course, we have a marvelous stage manager. And the stage manager and even the house manager should keep an ear out and, and keep... Could, should come back and say that I'm getting requests for uh, to be louder. Mm-hmm. The audience is too polite to say louder,
1: mm-hmm.
2: but it's maddening if you can't hear.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, as we've gone over your career, I'm going to prompt you because you said something very interesting before we got on the air that you started your career wanting to do the classics. Yes. And you said that you found as your career has gone on something different from what your expectation was can mm-hmm. you can you share that with well everybody?
2: what it is and and in a way we have touched on it is the fact that i have worked with living playwrights. We've mentioned Peter Schaffer of Equus and, of course, Terence McNally and, of course, Edward Albee. I'm thinking of Teresa Rebeck, who did a play called The Butterfly Collection, her work. It's marvelous to be in a room with the playwright. And I can remember... It's many years ago now, but I can remember walking to the first reading we had of A Delicate Balance. And it was at Edward's house at that time. He had a little house in the Greenwich Village. And I remember thinking, I was so excited and so thrilled, and I loved the part so, and the play so much. And I thought, this must be how a young actress must have felt walking to the Moscow Art Theatre, where Chekhov was waiting for the first reading of his play. It's a famous picture of Chekhov with all the actors, and I, I can see it in my mind's eye. Well, I also now see Edward listening to A Delicate Balance. And it was it's, it's marvelous to think that this will be a part that I'm doing that no one has seen anyone else do. And when you're young... People say to you, what would you like to play? And if you say, oh, Cleopatra, their their eyes go sort of funny. They look at you and think, my God, why do you think she can play that? So I used to say, well, I'd like to play something that's not yet written, that has never been played before, because I didn't want them to look at me funny about the dreams I had. I've yet to play Cleopatra. I think it's a bit late.
1: (laughs) Well... You've certainly done tremendous amount of theater work, yes. film, television. You've written a book. Yes. I'm not talking now about a role or a part. No. Is there anything you have not done that you really do want to do, either professionally or just in your personal life, be it directing or traveling or No,
2: anything? no. I want to do what I'm doing. Uh-huh. I, luckily, it's so satisfying to me to be on the stage and to be in a theater and to be in the city I love. To have been born here and not want to travel. I love to travel, but I don't want to get away from New York. I love it here, and I love what I do.
0: You are so generous with your time in the theater community around New York, and frankly, there are few events celebrating theater that did not include Marian Seldes. The benediction at the Tony nominee's lunch has become a tradition. You... You participate in so much. You mentioned the Food for Thought program, the Shaw Project. As someone who really is now the first lady of New York theater, I want to ask you, what are the things that you think the next generation of actors should keep in mind because you set such an example but what are the things that aspiring performers or, or or people just starting out should keep in mind about how to have a career that sustains over 60 years
2: well i can only talk about theater Because I haven't really, although you've been kind to say so, I haven't really had success in the other fields so much. I've had work that I've liked to do, and I think I'm still learning how to do on film and so on. But I would say that you have to love the work as much as or more than anything else in your life and that is not to say not to live a full life because you won't be an interesting actor if you don't but you have to focus you have to you have to want it enough that so much that it is never a sacrifice you don't give up anything to be in the theater you 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 have the chance to give back to give the theater to other people and i think If someone were lucky and wanted it as much as I do, I don't know if people still do, I would just say, good luck, you're lucky.
1: And we have been very lucky over the last 60 years to see Marion Seltis on stage, on screen, on the small screen, on radio, (laughs) and now here today on Downstage Center. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Marion, thanks so much for being with us today.
2: It's been lovely to be with you both. Thank you, Marion.
0: For the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theater Wing, hundreds of hours of it, is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org.
1: And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you.
0: The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the podcasts of Downstage Center... Help us in our efforts to share the best in theater with listeners everywhere by writing a review for iTunes or for your favorite podcast directory. Thanks so much.